January 13th at 8.07 in Hawaii, an emergency uh, message was sent to the residents of the island. The message was supposed to be a test of their emergency system. And the great news was that the test worked. The problem was the worker sent out the wrong message. This was the message that went to all of Hawaii last Saturday. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. For 38 minutes, the residents of Hawaii had to decide what to do. How they respond, how would they respond to that warning? Some people immediately headed for designated shelters that they knew where they were. Others took their cars and they drove into tunnels in the middle of mountains thinking if they could just get deep enough into the mountain, if if a, a missile hit, they'd be okay. Some parents took their kids and climbed into the sewer system below ground thinking if they could just get below ground, they'd be safe. Other parents gathered their children and sat together in a bathtub in the center of their house thinking that was the best that they could do. Finally, after 38 minutes, a follow-up message went out that explained the, the, the message that had gone out was not real. It wasn't that the system had been hacked. It's not that the threat was real and the threat had been dealt with. The problem was the worker in the emergency system pressed the wrong button on their computer. Talk about your bad day. Can you imagine going home that night and saying to your spouse, how was your day? Well, it wasn't the best. Yeah, I know, I heard about some idiot that sent out this message. Better question is maybe this. What would you do if you knew that your death was imminent? Who would you talk to? What would you say? One of the things that happened all over the state of Hawaii last Saturday was that people began to pray. Christians prayed. Agnostics prayed. Atheists prayed. Because when faced with death, and the opportunity to consider eternity in a real, tangible way, people looked to Jesus. Why? Because when we face death, we recognize with tremendous clarity that we need a savior. Jesus matters. What matters? Jesus matters. We're in the third week of our series called What, what Matters, where we're talking about the big rocks of North Point, the things that, that distinguish who, what makes North Point, North Point. Uh, who are we about as a church? The authority of scripture we've talked about, the character and nature of God, Jake did a great, uh, a great job with last week. Today, Jesus Jesus matters. If you're new to church or if you've been away from church for a long time or maybe you've been coming to church for years but you're just kind of going through the motions doing the plastic Jesus thing, let me say to you, today's message is perhaps the most important talk you've ever heard in church. I I, I don't say that to be sensationalistic. I don't say it to be dramatic but I say it to spell out with clarity what's at stake 
in today's message. When you face eternity, when you you face crisis, Jesus matters. Over Christmas, we uh, went to Joplin to see our kids, and I got to play a game with my grandchildren. It was the game, Don't Break the Ice. You know that game? You got this blue cube, you got these white pieces of uh, plastic that are there, and you've got this centerpiece that you put this guy in the center of the cube, and the game then is to knock the pieces of ice out and to keep the center intact, to keep that connected. How long can you go and do that? Understand that Jesus is the centerpiece in our real life game of don't break the ice. Jesus is the one everything hinges on. Jesus is the one who stands in place. What I want to do today, what I want to do today is something that you can't do in the game. You can't put cubes back in once they get knocked out in the game. But for some of you, you've listened to the voices of culture You've heard people talk about Jesus and they've pinged away at those cubes. Maybe you've been a part of that, knocking those cubes away to say, ah, Jesus isn't really what he says he is. And, and Jesus is, maybe he's fallen through. Maybe he's there precariously. But my aim today, my desire, my heart is that we can look at those cubes and that we can shore that up, that Jesus can be the center of your life, that you can live and die knowing him, knowing who he is. The first cube I want to talk about is this. Jesus was a real person. Jesus was a real person. Now that that sounds kind of simplistic, doesn't it? But there are lots of voices in the world, lots of people that if you listen to will say, "Um, Jesus was not really a real person. Jesus was, uh, he, he was really kind of a myth. He was a legend. Maybe there was a guy who lived whose name was Jesus or Jesus or something. You know, uh, there was this guy But there was this desire that people had to create someone that they could look to, that could be hope for the hopeless. And over time, people began to make stuff up about him. They began to say, oh yeah, that guy could do uh, miracles when he really couldn't at all. And, And they began to say, oh yeah, maybe he really was God, but he wasn't, because he wasn't really a real person anyway. Hear me, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was a real person who lived and died. Historian Michael Grant says this, if we apply to the New Testament as we should, the same, cri- the same sort of criteria as we should apply to other ancient writings containing historical material, we can no more reject Jesus' existence then we can reject the existence of a mass of pagan personages whose reality as historical figures is never questioned. What did he mean by that? What did Grant mean by that? He meant that we have to take the claims that we find in the New Testament and we have to use the same rules we do for other literature from history to examine whether the characters and the events that we read in the New Testament really happened, whether or not they're real. It makes no sense to believe the New Testament with a blind religious faith and say, oh yeah, we just take it for, we take it um, for truth without any type of testing. We can measure the New Testament using the same tests, the same criteria that we use for other literature from ancient history. And when we do, it's absolutely clear. 
Jesus was a real person. Do you know that Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus multiple times in a, in a book that was written about 60 years after Jesus' death. It's, uh, the, the name of the book is Antiquities of the Jews. He, Josephus was a historian telling the story of the Jews, and as he told the story of the Jews from the first century, he referenced Jesus. Tacitus was a Roman historian whose job it was, was to tell the history of Rome from the first century in about 115, so about 70 years after Jesus died. Tacitus wrote about Jesus in the story of Rome. Neither of those guys had a dog in the fight. Neither of them were followers of Jesus. Neither of them were Christians. Neither of them believed, but they recognized that there was this guy who lived in Galilee who was real, named Jesus. Don't believe the philosophers and the psychologists. Believe the historians. Jesus was a real person. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He did ministry in Galilee. He died outside Jerusalem. Jesus was a real person, and his birth was miraculous. When you read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, um, Matthew says this, the birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. The circumstances of Jesus' birth were miraculous. They were something that couldn't be explained. Uh, no sex, and yet there's a baby. That's crazy. But not only was, it, was the conception of Jesus a miracle, the prophecies surrounding the birth of Jesus were miraculous as well. If we can look back in history and find prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and we can read the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we can, if that's true, and we can find those prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and they're true, and they're fulfilled in Jesus, all of a sudden, that, mean, that, that makes his birth crazy. Prophecies that described who his family line would be. Prophecies that described the town that he would be born in. Prophecies that described where he, would, where he would be as a child. Prophecies that described the death of, uh, of uh, children that were his age in the region where he was born. Those prophecies fulfilled in this baby, Jesus. His birth was miraculous. Real person with a miraculous birth. Uh, uh, not only was Jesus' birth miraculous, his death was gruesome. The gospels, the, the biographies of Jesus describe Jesus' death in a way that matches the, the, the um, method of execution that the Romans used for the most heinous criminals around. Criminals that were, dis, that, that were terrible, um, the Romans crucified. And when you read the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the scriptures that are on screen. You can find those again in your app. When you begin to read that, you see uh, painted the picture of what historians describe as crucifixion used for the worst criminals of Rome. Jesus was a real person. He died a brutal death. Jesus' resurrection was unexpected. Jesus really did 
come back to life. And it surprised everyone except Jesus. The resurrection was a real historical event. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Not just one or two people said, yeah, we think we saw him on the corner as he was going by, kind of like people talk about Elvis, you know, in 7-Eleven. Not that at all. As many as 500 people in one place saw Jesus together. Hundreds of people interacted with Jesus after his death and burial, when he was alive again. The resurrection was a real historical fact. Check it out in the Gospels that are there. I want, you had a, I want you to have a clear picture. Jesus had a miraculous birth. He died a gruesome death, and it was followed by a surprise ending, his resurrection. That's big stuff. But what was his life like? You know, uh, one of the things that I do as we plan out our, our series of messages, every year I want us to, to take a significant look at Jesus because everything hinges on Jesus. Every year I'm trying to think, okay, how can we look at what Jesus taught, how Jesus interacted with people that can help us understand who he is and how to have the right kind of relationship with God. Let me give you just a big picture in a a short time today about Jesus, about what his life was like. Jesus was completely human. It's so critical to know this. I said he was a real person, but it's, it's important that you grasp that Jesus was completely human. He was flesh and blood, like us. Galatians 4 says, when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul writes to the Galatians and says, Jesus was born just like everybody else. He was born from a woman. John 1.14 says the word, and that's a descriptor that, that John uses to describe Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was flesh and blood. When he fell as a boy, he scraped his elbows and knees. When he hit his finger with a hammer, it hurt. When he was cut, he bled. When he crashed into something, he bruised. When he ate beans, he had gas, all right? Uh, When his friend died, he cried. When he went without sleep, he was tired. When he saw something funny, Jesus laughed. He got frustrated with his friends. Jesus loved his mother. He was fully human. This is such an important cube in the cosmic game of Don't Break the Ice that John at one point wrote, this is how you can recognize spirits that are from God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Jesus was just like us. And while he was fully human, he was tempted like us, but he never sinned. Jesus went through the same stuff as us. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. What temptation do you struggle with? Jesus did too. Is procrastination an issue for you? 
I think Jesus thought, ah, I don't know that I want to do that today. I don't know that I want to do that. I'd much rather spend time with God than go be with those people. Do you struggle with giving, to, giving into your flesh in whatever way that that takes place in your life? Jesus did too. Do you struggle? Are you tempted to take a shortcut and to not go the path that you need to go? Jesus dealt with that. You struggle to control your tongue? I think there were lots of times that Jesus thought, oh. Jesus was not practically perfect like Mary Poppins. Jesus was fully perfect. He was tempted just like us and never sinned. Jesus was not just fully human. He didn't sin. He was fully God at the same time. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you know him because you know me. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. At least believe because the evidence of the things that I do, the works themselves that are in my life. Jesus was fully human. He was fully God. He was tempted like we are, but didn't sin. Another cube for us is that Jesus is returning. He's going to come back. Jesus himself said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I'm coming back, Jesus said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God. Jesus is coming back to earth for us. We know because Jesus said so. We know because scripture confirms that. We don't know the details. And the details are not a big rock for us as a church. But the certainty that Jesus will return is. What do I mean by that? I mean, I, I don't know how, what kind of exposure you have to theology, but it doesn't matter to us here at church whether you're a dispensationalist or not a dispensationalist. It doesn't matter if you're premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or you don't have a clue what a millennial is, uh, all right? None of that matters. All that matters is to recognize Jesus is coming back. He said that he's gonna come back for us, and we believe that. Jesus said about that day or time, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father knows. But it's certainty, he's coming back. Another cube, Jesus' death was as a substitute for us. Jesus' death was a substitute for us. Because my sin separates me from God, I deserve to die. That same thing is true for you. We deserve to die, but God allowed Jesus to die in our place as our substitute. He allowed Jesus to pay the bill for every one of us. 
You know, up until the Civil War in the United States, there was never a draft for any kind of military conflict. Only volunteers served in the military. But in the Civil War, as that war broke out in 1861, um, the anticipation was that the war was not going to last long at all. That it was going to be just a few skirmishes, a short, uh, a short time, uh, a few months maybe, and, and one of two things was going to happen. Either the South was going to be uh, reclaimed back by the North, there was going to be one country. People in the South thought, no, you know what, we seceded, there's going to be two countries in North America. By the end of the second year of, of the Civil War, it became clear that it was not going to be a short conflict at all. And, and the people who had volunteered to serve in the army and thought it was going to be short term, at that point they're thinking, I've got to get home and take care of my crops. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to, I've got to get back home. And so their terms were up and they began to go home. And first the Confederacy said, we've got to have more soldiers. And so they instituted a draft in 1862. In 1863, the North realized, the, the Union Army realized that it was going to be a prolonged conflict of incredible magnitude. And they instituted a draft as well. The interesting thing to me about both of those drafts, the Confederates and for the Union, was that you could pay someone to take your place in the war. So if I was drafted, I could say, hey, Justin, here's some cash. You go serve for me. The amount of cash that it took was $300. So this is equivalent of about $5,000. So for $5,000, I could say, Justin, I want you to die for me. And Justice, Justin had to decide, do I do that or not? He would substitute in my place in the army. That's the picture of Jesus for us with God. We deserve to die. And God says, you know what? I will allow Jesus to die in your place. The price wasn't cash. The price was Jesus' sinlessness. Because he was tempted but never gave in. Because he was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. Only because of that could he be the substitute for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus was a substitute for us. That's incredible to think about. You know, when you look at Jesus as a whole, when you think about the big rock of Jesus, one of three things is true. One of three things has to be true. Jesus was either crazy, or he was despicable, or he was too marvelous to comprehend. What do I mean by that? Jesus, Jesus said that he was God, and only a crazy person claims to be God, right? If I stood up here and said, you know what, I am God, you guys will all go, huh, yeah, not right. You, you gotta be crazy to think that you're God, right? So Jesus either had to be crazy, off his rocker, not playing with a full deck, or he had to be despicable because he claimed to be God. He claimed to do miracles. He claimed to forgive sin and 
There's no way that Jesus could do that knowing that he wasn't God and be a good person, be a good moral teacher. He couldn't be. You can't say Larry Nasser was a good doctor because his deception it was despicable. Jesus' deception, if Jesus deceived the people who were closest to him, if Jesus deceived the, the uh, Jewish people, he's despicable. He's not a good moral teacher. He's either crazy or he's despicable or he is who he said he is and he's more wonderful than we can imagine at all. Then we can comprehend that God would come to earth to die for us. His love compels him to die. For, that's crazy. I've been telling you a lot about Jesus, facts and truth about him. I share those things about Jesus to hopefully serve as an introduction for you to Jesus because it's not enough to know about him. You have to know him. It's not enough for Jesus to be your parent's friend or to be your friend's friend or to be your pastor's friend or to be anybody's friend. He's gotta be your friend. You have to know him. That was, that's true for us. It was true for his disciples, even though they spent time with him. At one point in his ministry, Jesus took the disciples. They'd been in Galilee. It was hot. It was sweaty. There was beginning to be pressure from the religious leaders. And Jesus took his disciples, his 12, and they went to, uh, into northern Israel to a cool place where this big spring was, a place called Caesarea Philippi. In Caesarea Philippi, in this city that was there, there were these huge temples to gods. One of the gods was Pan. It was a crazy, crazy place. And in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, who do you say I am? That's the question. That's the question that matters for us today. Who do you say I am? Peter said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the promised one for Israel. You're the savior of all mankind. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, man, you are absolutely correct. Everything hinges on that. I'll build my church on that. Who do you say I am? That's the question at the heart of today's message. It's a message about one of North Point's big rocks, but it's more about what matters to you than to the church. What are you gonna do with Jesus? It may be that you came this morning, you weren't prepared for this at all, and you're processing stuff in a way that you never have before. Let me just encourage you with, with some tools that are there for you. Um, uh, uh, some books I'd recommend. They're not the Bible, but they'll make you think a ton. One book is called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. It's only about 70 or 80 pages. You can read it um, uh, really easy. It will make you think a ton about Jesus and his claims. Another book is called The Case for Christ. Uh, it was written by Lee Strobel, who was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian, and his goal was to disprove Christianity. If you don't like to read, the movie's on Netflix right now and you can watch it this afternoon, all right? Uh, 
The Case for Christ by Strobel, uh, a book that's been around a long time called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, is not solely about Jesus, but in this book, the claims for Jesus are considered. And C.S. Lewis is the guy who first said, um, that, that when, I, when I just said Jesus had to be crazy, he had to be despicable, or, or he had to be more wonderful, C.S. Lewis is the guy who said Jesus is either a liar, a lord, or a liar, a lunatic, or he's lord of the universe. Think about that. Um, a couple that I know told me their story once. It's a pretty incredible story. Um, they, they got to know each other, and, and it wasn't long as they spent time together before, before the man really began to fall in love with this woman. Um, he wanted to be in a relationship with her, and um, she didn't really want to with him. Uh, they were friends, spent a lot of time together, talked about all kinds of stuff. He asked her out, and she said, nah, you know what, I don't really want to do that. And so they just continued to be friends. She began to date other people, and she'd come back and tell this guy about the guys that she had dated and what had happened, and he'd listen patiently. He was all the time there, standing on the sidelines, loving her, protecting her, even when she didn't realize that she was being protected by him. Always there for her, waiting for her to respond in her time. She continued to date guy after guy, and those relationships um, went south. They they'd blow up. Finally, after one um, especially bad breakup, she said that she sat down and thought, you know, every guy that I date, I compare to this other guy. He wouldn't treat me that way. That's not how he takes care of me. And she ultimately made the choice to say no to all the other guys and to say yes to this man. Uh, They began to date. They got married. They've been married, I don't know, six years, something like that now. Um, I know them well. It's an incredible thing. In their bathroom, in their house, for the last four years, there's a note that's on their wall that he put up. It's an interesting note. It's just written in uh, ink on a little posty kind of a thing, but it's been on their bathroom wall for four years. I love it because it describes, uh, when I talked to him about it, he said, you know, it, it, it says a truth that we both need to hear all the time, but he put it there. Um, It's weathered, it's battered. It describes the love of a husband for a wife. This is what that note looks like. It describes the love of Jesus for you. Jesus, who really died, who lived a sinless life, died a death he didn't deserve, who came back to life because he was the author of life, who is coming back to take us to a new home that he personally designed for us, says to you today, you are a treasure. I love you. And he waits for us to respond. I want to just give you an opportunity today. Um, If you have never said yes to Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that today. There's not anything fancy or formal in that. It's just a matter of talking to him and telling him. Maybe you know Jesus. I I hope that you've uh, just 
realized again how much he loves you and who he is. Let's pray together. God, I pray right now for some folks who are struggling, who hear you speaking to them, maybe who are seeing Jesus for the very first time for who he is. He's real. He's passionate about him. He's been patient, but he wants them to respond. If that's you here at North Point today, I want you to just say yes. Yes, Jesus, I want you. I want to quit playing the field. I want to quit being distracted by all the stuff. I don't want a plastic version of you. I want the real thing. I want a faith that can sustain me when the missiles are coming. I want you. Come in, fill me up, Lord. God, we ask that you would help us hear your voice, that you would help us see Jesus at every turn, today, each day, and to rest in that love and the reality of Jesus' presence in our lives. In his name we pray, amen.